Welcome to Tokyo Game Life, a Tokyo-based video game podcast focusing on Nintendo and gaming culture in Japan's capital. Your host Mono here to bring you a slice of gaming life from Tokyo. Golden Week has wrapped up, which is Japan's big spring holiday. I just stayed in Tokyo, but I did a lot of fun things. Some gaming related and some not. I made taiyaki, I made a candle, and yeah, I played some video games. It rained a bit during the holidays, which means I had guilt-free gaming time. I do feel bad when it's a sunny day with a blue sky over Tokyo and I just stay inside. So rainy days, hey, that's free gaming time. And there's a lot of games to talk about. Some new, some old, some a little old, but also kind of new. I don't want to overhype anything, but this may be the biggest, most jam-packed episode yet. This is a very special episode because I am chatting with Christoph Galati, the developer of Save Me Mr. Taco, a Game Boy-inspired action-adventure platformer. It came out a few years ago, was delisted, then released again with a new version, and now a physical edition is on the way. The game has a lot to love if you are a Nintendo fan, and the backstory surrounding it is really interesting. What else is on Nintendo Switch? Oh, how about a sequel to one of the most popular titles of all time? Nintendo Switch Sports launched, and I'm here to share my thoughts on the revival of this iconic franchise. What's the best sport? How much is an all-day pass at Spaco Square? Do people want to wear a shark head? All will be answered. And if you are still on a sports kick, I also tried out Mario Golf on N64 for the first time ever and have a lot to say about that too. Isn't it weird that Metal Mario has a metal golf club? How does that feel? And don't forget about the feature. This episode's feature is about Beep, a well-known retro game shop in Akihabara, most famous for selling old Japanese computers. We're talking PC-98, PC-88, FM Towns, MSX, you name it, I saw it. Beepus may be one of the most cramped stores in Japan, and that's saying something, but I braved the storm to bring you the details. And of course, news. Splatoon 3 and all that fun stuff. But there's a lot to cover, so let's jump right into the games in my conversation with the developer of Save Me Mr. Taco. Let's chat games. Save Me Mr. Taco is a Game Boy-inspired action-adventure platformer originally released on the Switch and other platforms in 2018. After being delisted in 2020, a new version titled Save Me Mr. Taco Definitive Edition went on sale. We're nearing the Definitive Edition's one-year anniversary and the upcoming physical release, so I wanted to highlight it. And who better to talk about the game than the person who made it? So guess, please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Christophe Galati. I'm the creator of Semi Mr. Taco and uh, basically an indie game developer from France. <laughs> Thank you for joining me, Chris. We should start from the top. What are the origins of Save Me Mr. Taco? Basically, um, I started creating games when I was 12 and uh, using RPG Maker or RPG Tsukuru, as we say in Japan, <laughs> a software a lot of people used. And uh, I started by making Pokemon fan game and stuff like that. Hmm. And um, I did that until I got my, my degree uh, in high school. And then I went to study in game schools in, in Paris called Isard Digital. But there, like, I was not really motivated by the project at, during the second year. So I, I was kind of depressed because I have an internship where I worked for big brands like cheese brands and stuff like that to make serious games. And it wasn't funny <laughs> at all. So I wanted to get back to the feeling I had when I was making pa passion projects like I was doing with RPG Maker. 
And so, yeah, it was 2014. It was Game Boy 25th anniversary. And then I, I discovered Takoyaki. Like, I ate Takoyaki for the first time in Paris. And uh, I got the vision of an octopus character. So all of this merged in my, in my mind, and it led to Tako. <laughs> um, what games served as influences and inspirations for Save Me, Mr. Taco? Uh, many games went uh, where became references because when I create game, I try to pay tribute to an era of gaming that helped me growing up. So I started with the Game Boy. So I took basically like Zelda Link's Awakening, Kirby Dreamland 2, uh, For the Frog, the ball. Uh, I have to say, I don't remember the English name, but... The, For the Frog, the bell tolls? Yes, this one. <laughs> <laughs> and many games like that. Uh, and also, I'm a very big JRPG player, so... Uh, there is al al there's always a bit of Final Fantasy VI in my creation, mm. but also I try to take inspiration in my uh, own uh, culture and life. So it's, it talk about themes that really touch me, like tolerances and uh, and yeah, war and stuff like that. So it's kind of a big story packed in a in a kind of cute game. <laughs> yes, the game has quite an expansive story. What made you want to implement a JRPG style story instead of a simpler one like many Game Boy platformers? Well, I, I create game to tell stories, so yeah, I I, I know the, the the kind of game is not the the best one to tell story, but I wanted to to do it anyway because if there was no story, I would wouldn't have had the motivation to make the game. So yeah, I, I added a, a story, and uh, that's what I'm, I'll keep doing in my future game too. But uh, yeah, I wanted to tell something with Taco, and I'm glad I was able to do it. When I played it, I immediately thought of the ice beam from Metroid, making platformers with the ice beam. Is such a small part of that game, but the mechanic of shooting enemies to make platforms is more prominent in Save Me, Mr. Taco. What fascinated you about this gameplay mechanic? Well, I had the idea of an octopus character. I tried to think of what can an octopus do. <laughs> so there was uh, a few options, like uh, the tentacle, so maybe a grappling hook, or then the camouflage, like changing his color or stuff like that. But as I, went in a, as I was in a Game Boy-type game, there was no colors. <laughs> And the last mm. one was uh, the ink, so I uh, I, st I stuck I stick with this one because I also played a lot of Metroid and uh, <laughs> and yeah I think uh, I, I implemented it and uh, when it worked I was like, oh it's fun so I built on that but yeah I very quickly I added the add feature like uh, the kind of the one we can have in Kirby like having many powers so that stayed the core of the of the gameplay. The Game Boy style graphics look very authentic. What were some of the challenges you came across when trying to stay faithful? to the look of the classic Game Boy titles. Yeah, for me, it was a big learning experience because I, I used to do pixel art, but I wasn't really good at it before. And doing the Game Boy style really taught me about like uh, palettes and uh, shades, shadows and stuff like that. But yeah, uh, basically, I made all the graphics using Microsoft Paint. <laughs> so it was kind of a challenge. But um, being doing the big background or bigger monster sprite was the hardest thing for me. But um, I'm glad I, I managed to do it. But also, yeah, um, the thing is, the world is kind of big, so it was a bit hard to not being too repetitive and not reusing too much too much the sprites. But as I implemented a, a color uh, palette switch uh, feature, it really helped, especially as the, in the definitive edition now there is an auto palette mode, so it kind of changed depending on the on the place where you are, like in Pokemon Yellow. So it kind of helped also to differentiate the environment. And also one of the things that um, first players of the original version thought, like they were, it was hard for them to memorize which character was who because of the limited uh, st style. But uh, for me, though, I, try, I, did, I did my best to give them all emotions and uh, character. 
but also to to fix that now there is their name shown in the in the dialog box now <laughs> also so i guess it will be easier for everyone let's talk about the definitive edition in 2020 the original game was delisted by the publisher nicalis was breaking off your relationship with them so you can release a new version of the game a difficult decision or something you were very confident in doing well, it was something I couldn't avoid if I wanted to have my game patched. So that's what I had to do. But uh, it was hard to to republish it from the ground up and not like uh, like because we basically lost the all player fan base. So all the people who bought the original version had to buy it again mm. to get the updates. But it was the only thing uh, possible to do in order to patch the game. So I did it. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad I, I got the opportunity to to patch the game and make a, a version closer to my original vision with it. The Definitive Edition reviewed much better than the original game. On Metacritic, the Definitive Edition's average is 10 points higher. Did you feel relieved that people responded so positively to the changes in this new version? Yes, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy about that because um, obviously, as I told you, my goal was to tell a story. And unfortunately, in the original version, the gameplay difficulty made made a lot of people not able to enjoy it or to go through. So it was very frustrating. And that's why I really wanted to be able to patch the game because I never intended to make a, a hard game. Mm. It's just like it's the first game I make uh, I made professionally. And it's also very rooted in Game Boy. So I b- took a bit too much of the Game Boy uh, aspect. Mm. But, um, but yeah, I'm glad I was able to, to fix it. And I hope like that with time, uh, more people will be able to discover the game and, and enjoy it because it's a bit hard to, as most of the players who bought it the first time didn't have to repay it. Uh, most, uh, most of them haven't retried the new version, I guess. And even to catch attention of press, like making people review the game again was a bit hard. Mm. But, um, but yeah, I really hope that with time... Uh, more people will discover the game and so and uh, witness the story. One addition I really like in the definitive edition is the color palette changing that you mentioned earlier. So why did you want to implement this feature? When I first released the game, like because I was expecting people to complain about some stuff, but uh, people really complained about things I didn't uh, thought about, like uh, the, the, the these palettes, and uh, that's why I tried to take everything, uh, people, every feedback for most of them, and uh, really apply it and make a very better version of the game. And yeah, having the autopilot mode was... um, Because at first, I really wanted to make um, a GBC mode, but it was a bit too hard due to how the game was programmed. The the middle ground was the autopilot mode, I guess. So at least it gave more personality and mood to the atmosphere and uh, still look more colorful. Yes, you mentioned Pokemon Yellow earlier. And when I was a kid, how the color palette would change based on which city you are, that was definitely mind-blowing to me as a child. Yeah, <laughs> for me too. Uh, and uh, also, yeah, because like the, the palette switch uh, feature was really implemented very early on in the game development. It was one of the first things I wanted to do because I also played a lot of Game Boy games on the Game Boy Color because I, I never owned uh, the original Game Boy uh, when I was young. I, I started with the Color. so But I played a lot of Game Boy games on the Color system, so... That's why I wanted to have this feature to be able to change. And so basically, all the palettes that are in the game are the original ones from the Game Boy. The Japanese release of the Definitive Edition actually hit a few days ago with a new localization by 8.4. How did that relationship come about? Yeah, basically, when with the, the previous version was delisted, we had to cut some stuff from the game, including the original translation. So we had to make new translation in order to, to re-release the game in Japan. 
And I was working with uh, Limited Run is now publishing the game digitally and physically. And they uh, they put me in touch with uh, 8.4. I also met them, uh, like I met John several times in Japan when I was there, like during a game events and stuff. So it was right. kind of, uh, I was really happy to be able to finally work with him. And they did a really great job on the translation because there is improvement compared to the original ones because now the game support kanjis. In the original uh, version, like I wanted to be very faithful to the Game Boy era and when you play Game Boy game, there was no kanji because right. um, because uh, limited uh, memory and it was too hard to display many characters. But yeah, I, I also noticed that, that some players were having trouble like really understanding the story in Japan also due to that because it's not, we are not used to it anymore. So yeah, I, I did kanji, we did kanjis and, um, and I guess, and I think that, yeah, the translation is more faithful to, to what the story uh, wants to tell. The game is getting a physical edition in May thanks to the publisher Limited Run Games. Was getting a physical version of the game one of your goals from the beginning? Sure, yeah, it was like a dream for me to have uh, one of my games like uh, on my shelf, <laughs> right. like in a, in a physical box. Like, uh, and it was one of the reasons I started to work with Nicalis also in the first place because mm. they are very good at doing physical editions. But yeah, it never happened. So I'm kind of glad like that uh, eight years after the, the beginning of the project, uh, the physical version is finally happening. <laughs> and also, like I also always wanted to do merch merchandising. Like when I fought mm. and created uh, the ca- game characters, I always have merch, merch in, in mind, like uh, making them uh, stand out and iconic to to be able to like have figures or of plush or stuff with all the characters. So I'm really happy to finally have a plush <laughs> and, uh, of Taco. And I, uh, and I hope like that uh, in the future, I will be able to do more merch and merchandising uh, with the game. This is a Japan-based podcast. So of course, I have some questions about your time over here. A few years ago, you undertook an artist residency in Kyoto. How did you discover this opportunity? Well, because basically, when I when Taco was first released, uh, I was kind of burned out <laughs> because mm. of I, because I spent four years making the game mostly on my own in mm. my free time after job and then full time. And uh, yeah, I was kind of I wanted to do a new game, but I was like, do I really want to to start uh, overworking again and doing everything on my own? And like, uh, I really needed to to get in better shape and uh, get back with myself and think about what I really wanted to do artistically. So uh, so I, I saw one day, uh, because I watch a lot of documentary, and uh, I saw on, t- on TV a documentary about Villa Medicis, which is basically the oldest and the more ancient uh, artist residency, because it was ma- created by like uh, Louis XIV, like King of France uh, <laughs> at Versailles. <laughs> wow. So it was, um, yeah, France have a big history of creating artist residency all over the world. And so this one was, it was documentary about, a documentary about the first one. And, um, and I was like, oh yeah, it seems very cool. Like to be able, like to, to be as an artist, to be able to have a space to you know where you are able to create your what what you want and uh, be be like don't have to worry about money and stuff like that and so yeah doing I do I did research and I yeah I really thought like game developers were never accepted in this kind of place before so like it was always like fine arts uh, architecture movies music painting stuff like that and so yeah I think yeah I should try so uh, I searched about uh, artist residency and I found there was one in Kyoto called Villa Kujoyama. So I was, a, when, before applying, I was kind of scared because like I became the youngest person ever accepted there because they asked wow. for five, five years of experience and I was like, 
I was 24 when I applied, so, so it was a bit, um, yeah, <laughs> it was a bit scary, but I applied and yeah, they, they, they really saw the connection between my work in Japan and they said, yeah, we, they will, they accepted me. So yeah, I was able to go to Kyoto for five months and uh, live in a good condition and it really helped kickstart my new project. What was the reaction when you told the artist at the residency that you were a game developer? Yeah, it was something I was scared about at first because uh, when uh, like when you see like uh, I, I watch a lot of, Jam- of Japanese drama and anime and there is always this kind of trope where you are like the the poor student in the rich school <laughs> <laughs> and I was really like I was really scared that uh, people will overlook games and say it's not really art and like why is here or stuff like that but it never it really didn't happen like all the artists that were here with me were very open about game. They were not necessarily gamer, but they said, oh, it's about time, like uh, games are part of the culture and it's important that it's represented. So I was really well welcomed. But uh, yeah, the only few times like these comments were thrown at me, it was more when there were visits, like people visiting the residency for open days. There were some people asking why I was here and like, oh, games are not art. It's uh, like a mass culture. It's violent. And there were some people telling that, but they were, they were not the artists. They were like in the public. But yeah, when I started talking to them about what games are, they uh, like when, when we did Open Days, Open Studio, I kind of did a small exhibition next to my games where I took like, I did um, like one shelf with Game Boy games, one shelf with Game Boy Advance game and one shelf with game, DS games. And I was really like doing a timeline behind them and telling like uh, how these games helped me and uh, what uh, b- they brought me to me uh, in my life. And uh, yeah, people like when they passed by, they saw the old game and they were like, oh, that's Kashi. Oh, I remember. I remember this one. And it really helped them to rem- remember like they, they played game and those games are still in their heart and they, they brought them something. But growing when they grew up, they forgot about them. So yeah. Seeing those games there, like exhibited like an art piece, uh, for them it was like, yeah, I remember them, so yeah, I guess, yeah, it's art. Like they brought something to me, so I'm, I, I was kind of glad to be the, the first uh, game developer there to kind of educate people about uh, game as an art form. And I really hope that in the future there will be more game developers in those kind of art places. I need to know, what was the best thing you ate in Kyoto? Oh, I don't know. There are a lot of things I, <laughs> I ate in Kyoto, <laughs> but oh, hard question. I wasn't prepared for that one because I really enjoyed doing to the Matsuri and eat like uh, all kind of food in uh, in the shed. In the <laughs> that, mm. that could be <laughs> so fresh, fresh, fresh uh, seaweed, fresh, uh, fresh food, um, fried stuff, <laughs> everything. Yeah, I, I basically um, one great memory I have in Kyoto. It was I discovered like um, a chocolate place, like a coffee chocolate place, but very traditional in the Machiya, uh, and uh, it was really like hidden in the in the suburb of Kyoto. And uh, I found it, and yeah, the chocolate was very good. Uh, I think I think the truck was Choco, Nama Chocolate or something like that, the name. And uh, yeah, it, it became the the place where I brought my dates. <laughs> but yeah, it was really really good. Do you feel bad about eating takoyaki now that an octopus was the hero in your game? <laughs> no, not really bad. Basically, <laughs> I, I learned how to make takoyaki myself. So I have oh, a wow. machine. I know how to do it. And uh, yeah, when I was in the artist residency, I quite often make takoyaki for the other residents. So, so even now, like the, the, my Japanese teacher who went to, who is also an artist who worked with the, uh, the artist residency. 
like uh, <laughs> recently, like um, a Japanese artist was in Paris, in France, for in an artist residency, uh, a Japanese artist from Osaka. And like uh, my former teacher told me, ah, you have to go there, uh, you should go there and help her uh, make takoyaki for them. Like I was called takoyaki shokunin. <laughs> so it was really, uh, yeah, I think, uh, I, d- I guess I'm good at making takoyaki. <laughs> so if I can't uh, make it doing games, uh, I have a backup plan now. A few years ago, you tweeted out a photo of you at Nintendo's headquarters saying you had an appointment there. What came of that? <laughs> yeah, um, what came of that? But basically, I met uh, the people who are uh, in charge of the indie of indie world, mm. indie branch of Nintendo Japan. So I talked to them about uh, about Taco and also the game I was working at the time. And uh, basically, I have the right now. I can, if I want, I can port game to Switch without having a publisher. Mm. So that always helps. <laughs> that's always mm. something uh, appreciable. But yeah, that, that's kind of uh, yeah. We t- I talk about my games. So and they said uh, yeah, I would tweet them up when I have news and when uh, when I have something to announce. So I'm kind of waiting to that day now <laughs> to have the, the big announcement of my new game. Do you have any plans to return to Japan after they open up the country? Yeah, I really hope I can return somehow, like doing game events again, because before going to that, that residency, I did talk, Tokyo Game Show in 2016 and beat Summit the year after. And it was really a good experience for me. And also when I was attending the the, res- the residency, I organized the Game Jam there. So Game Jam is like a, a small event where you, people gather to create games together. And I organized one at the villa and I really want to be able to make that again, like continue to make it like something uh, that happens every year, like organizing the game jams uh, at the villa. That will be cool. But uh, yeah, and I have many friends there, so I kind of want to, to see them. And uh, Kyoto is really a magical place. So yeah, mm. a part of you always stays there. <laughs> right. <laughs> you are currently working on a new title, Himitsu Project. What can you tell us about this game? Yeah, but basically Himitsu Project is a game I started during the, residen- uh, during the residency. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, like my goal is to take a specific era of gaming. So I did Game Boy with Taco, and with Imitsu, I'm doing Game Boy Advance. So yeah, it's uh, and this time it's an action RPG. It's kind of um, Illusion of Gaia, Gaia Gensoki meets uh, Golden Sun, basically. <laughs> mm. And uh, yeah, the, my, there will st- there will be a big story too, like in Taco. Ah. And this story is centered about uh, the, the theme of secrets. So that's why the the project name is Himitsu. It's not the final name, but right now it's mm. the code name. And yeah, it will talk about secrets, about how they turn into traumas and uh, and uh, how people in powers uh, use those secrets and uh, those lies to uh, to control the world and how it uh, yeah it turns into shadows and stuff like that. And yeah, the goal is to have a rich cast of characters, to have to switch them in battle and to adapt to the enemies. And also each of them will have... Uh, their own trauma and uh, battle to overcome uh, in the story. Will Taco make an appearance or have a cameo in Himitsu Project? <laughs> I, I can't really tell. <laughs> <laughs> You'll see when I have things to announce. But uh, yeah, I, it's uh, my own universe, so who knows? Mm. Final question. With the physical release, there's now a plushie of the game's hero, Taco. If you could pick one other character in the game to get a plushie, who would you pick? Yeah, it's really hard, but uh, maybe it, I guess it will be the Octopus Princess as you're here, because mm. Octopus are easier to make as plushies. But uh, ah, right. 
like the whole octopus collection would be good <laughs> but i like the human characters as well and that's something the game suffered a lot during communication before in the past like people were only focusing about uh, octopuses but uh yeah the game most of the game happened in the is take place in the human world so the human characters are really important too so prince evan and kid or mireille or Yeah, I would like to have uh, like figures or also plushies of them. <laughs> But uh, for that, we need partners. Or I try to 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 talk to fan gamers. So we'll see. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Chris, for joining me today. Where can people find you? And where can people find Save Me, Mr. Taco? Thanks for having me. So basically, you can find me in uh, most social media under the uh, the alias at Chris Dinios. Like uh, it's on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you can find Save Me Mr. Taco on Steam and on Switch. Great. And listeners, please check it out. It's definitely worth playing. Once again, thanks for joining me today again, Chris. Thank you. <laughs> Once again, thanks to Christoph Galati for chatting with me. The Big In themselves released a new first-party title a few days ago. Nope, not Advanced Wars. Nintendo Switch Sports, the spiritual successor and or sequel to Wii Sports. It's listed as being developed by Nintendo EPD, but if you dig into the credits, the lead producers from EPD4, Kawamoto and Shimamura, are on this game. EPD4 is known for their casual games with unique control methods like 1-2-Switch and Ring Fit Adventure. The director is Yoshikazu Yamashita, who directed Wii Sports and Wii Sports Resort, so a lot of the talent behind this game is who you would expect. There is a rumored sequel to 1-2-Switch happening this year, so we might actually see two projects from this team before 2022 wraps up. But enough scanning names in the credits. We've got a game to talk about. It's hard to exaggerate the impact of Wii Sports. It is likely among the five most important games Nintendo has ever put out. Think about it. The game brought attention to the Wii, helped develop a casual game market, which then bled into other industries like smartphone gaming, validated motion controls as an input method people were enthusiastic to try out. The influence of this game is still being felt today albeit in more subtle ways. It became a legit crossover cultural phenomenon. How many grandmas playing Wii Sports stories did we hear in the late 2000s? But ignoring its tremendous influence, Wii Sports is also just a fun game. It's simple yet addictive with enough depth there to keep hardcore gamers playing. Wii Sports Resort was a meaty sequel that didn't conquer the planet like the original, but it still sold millions of copies and was very well reviewed. Did you know that there was actually a Wii Sports game on the Wii U? It's true, Wii Sports Club, which is sort of a remake of the original game. It had a completely bizarre release method. It originally was digital only, and they sold games individually. All the games weren't even available at first. It was only bowling and tennis, and then the others were gradually added over the next several months. It did get a retail version with all the games about six months later, but by then, nobody cared. Nintendo tried a lot of strange free-to-play, free-to-start, alternate payment plans, etc. during the Wii U and 3DS days due to the rise of smartphone gaming and because their business was in its darkest days in terms of consoles. Sorry, I am actually going to talk about Nintendo Switch Sports. I had to give some background because it's pretty interesting. The most popular game in the world got a sequel that did well, then a remake that nobody really noticed, and now it's back on Nintendo's best-selling console. And, well, it's sports. On your Nintendo Switch. It all feels incredibly familiar in a good way. It feels like Wii Sports was brought into the modern age. The control methods are more refined, and the games have even more depth than before, but they are still very easy to pick up and play. In lieu of the Wii Remote are the Joy-Cons. 
Some games require one, others two. The control method is certainly more precise than it was in the original game. You'll marvel at how accurately your sword moves as you spin your arm around. The input methods are all straightforward, with the exception of soccer. This utilizes both Joy-Cons and is the closest to using a traditional controller. The joysticks move your character and adjust the camera, plus you can dash and jump with the buttons. The motion controls come in when you kick or do a header. The controls are as smooth as you would like. Never did I think something wasn't registering. The mistakes were all on me, sadly enough. There are six games, a mix of classics and some new ones. Bowling and Tennis return from Wii Sports and Chambara from Wii Sports Resort. Of course, I have to mention this, Chambara translates to sword fighting in Japanese. It often refers to samurai cinema as a whole. I guess calling it kendo wouldn't be accurate, and sword fighting is a bit violent, so Chanbara fits better. The new sports are badminton, soccer, and volleyball. This is a good batch of games to start off with. There are obviously some glaring omissions, but Nintendo is going to gradually add more sports to this game. Golf, for example, is coming a few months from now. In these six, there's a lot of gameplay diversity. Tennis and badminton are definitely close to each other, but still require different strategies and techniques. The standout, obviously, is bowling. It was the best in the original game, and it's the best now. Putting all your focus into moving your arm, watching that ball coast down the lane, and then nailing a strike or botching your shot, this is heart-pumping action I'm talking about. The most interesting aspect about the online bowling is that it can support 16 players, more than any other game. It kind of operates like a battle royale, with everyone bowling at the same time, and the low scores get the boot after each round. Watching your name bounce up and down the scoreboard is nerve-wracking but fun. The bowling is fundamentally the same, but you have a greater control over the ball, so feel free to put a little English on it. Having everyone bowl at the same time and this elimination factor are great mechanics that really breathe life into the game. I always find the animation of you just sitting on the couch after being eliminated hilarious, but maybe that's just me. My second favorite is probably volleyball. I think I might be an outlier here, but this one has really exceeded my expectations. It's two on two, and you shift between bumping, setting, serving, hitting, blocking, and so on. Thankfully, the game flashes what you should be doing on the screen, so you always know what to prepare for and what gesture to make. Unlike a lot of the other sports, there are quite a few different motions you need to do. Volleyball is heavily based on timing, so not needing to keep track of your role at any current moment is great. It's all about execution. The rhythm of cycling these goals makes each match fast-paced and dynamic. You're always doing something different every five seconds. It's incredibly satisfying for both you and your partner to nail the timing on setting and hitting the ball, or for you to get a perfect block, which results in your team nabbing a point. It's first to five, so games fly by. The faces on the characters when you block also make me laugh. They look really intense, but still goofy. Third favorite might be soccer. This is the one that actually feels most like a video game since you use the joystick to move. The motion controls revolve entirely around kicks and headers. You can kick the ball in the air, straight ahead, or to the side. It's a giant Rocket League style ball, and like in that game, a lot of time will be spent running to the big ball. It can host up to eight players, which is the most in terms of team sports. Right now, a lot of people haven't developed a good strategy for the game, so it's a lot of kicking the ball wildly across the arena. Most goals seem to be pure luck. It will probably take some time for people to understand a bit of the nuance of not just soccer, but all the games. There are some tutorials, but most of the time the game really doesn't tell you a lot about how to actually succeed at these games. In volleyball, perfect timing rewards you with multipliers that make the ball faster. 
You can also get a bonus for quick jumps when you are spiking the ball. I had no idea this was a mechanic until I saw somebody else do it. More in-depth tutorials would certainly serve to help players understand that these games go beyond just noodling your arm about. Chambara is just a straight one-on-one -on -one battle that relies on outsmarting your opponent more than just reflexes. Slashing like a madman might be enough to take down some people, but others will require a bit of strategy and analyzing their patterns in order to take them out. It can be a bit hectic as your opponent wails on you and you're just trying to find the perfect block. Sometimes it does feel a bit random since I'm sure there are players who are just swinging until they get blocked, but the back and forth between two fighters can get nail biting. There are three different types of swords, including dual wielding, but I prefer the normal sword due to its power and knockback. It's also incredibly fun to see somebody hurled into the water. This seems like something that would be incredibly dangerous in real life. The drop into the water alone could injure someone, but maybe the sports mates are made of titanium, who knows? Tennis is pretty similar to what was in Wii Sports, it's doubles only, but you control both characters if it's only you on a team. I was solo up against an obvious eight-year-old brother and sister team online and completely destroyed them. Hey, that's how you learn. Badminton is singles only. It's the one I haven't quite wrapped my head around yet. I mean, I know how to play it, and it is a very fun sport to try in real life, but mechanically, I haven't really nailed the timing on my volleys. The drop shots are pretty fun, and you can definitely get in a cheap point every now and then by catching your opponent off guard with them. If you play a sport enough, you'll eventually be moved into the Pro League, which is the online ranking system. Unlike Wii Sports, there isn't any offline ranking progression, like a score for each sport, as most of the focus is on the online content. This might turn some people off who just want to play around with their friends or against the AI. Nintendo expects solo players to hop into an online match, and honestly, that's where I will be most of the time. The online modes do have a few exclusive things, like penalty kick and obstacle bowling, I wish the game had more of these sillier modes in there, or have them as options in online matches. Penalty Kick uses the leg strap so you can actually kick the ball. It's a bit amusing, but not something I will come back to often. A major part of the game is the character customization. Mies have been replaced by sports mates who are these kind of doll-like humans. You can still use a Mii head, but it looks very flat and not as detailed. There's a lot of customization areas, but currently there aren't too many items. Booting it up, I was really surprised at how few choices you have right at the start. This means a lot of other players will likely look like your doppelganger. Nintendo Switch Sports has what I can only describe as a free cosmetic battle pass. Once you level up by playing online games, you will choose between themed item boards and receive a random item from that. Once you get all the items in that collection, you will get some exclusive bonus items. This was one of the more surprising elements of the game. I certainly didn't expect this to be how you unlock items. Currently, the items are pretty bland. There's a simple set and a cute set. I got everything from the simple set, but I still pretty much look the same, minus a new mask. Also, the items you get don't really have color options. For example, you unlock a knit cap, but it's only black. I guess we gotta wait weeks or months for a red version, for example. There is a loading screen that says that every week we'll have new collections. Nintendo Switch Sports definitely leans into the live service concept, with cosmetics cycling in and out, and Nintendo has already announced that games will be added, like golf. There also have been data mines that reveal basketball and dodgeball might also be coming. All of these sound very exciting, so now that Smash reveals are done, we can maybe get sports reveals. Sadly, I don't think they're going to make dramatic CGI trailers for them. Some React YouTuber is like, oh, 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 it's lacrosse, it's lacrosse. What sports do I want to see? Hmm, maybe martial arts like judo would be fun. You can use the Joy-Cons to grab and throw. Archery is also a must. 
Darts, is that a sport? It is worth noting that the data mine also found some wilder customization options, like shark heads. You replaced your human head with a shark. This is going to happen. There is a squirrel character on the official page, so once these crazier customization options start to roll in, unlocking items will be a lot more intriguing. Please, Nintendo, do crossover collaborations. I want a Mario collection, a Zelda collection, a Splatoon collection. A small thing, but the game setting is quite interesting. Spaco Square is kind of like a sports amusement park. Or imagine a downtown area in Tokyo was converted into some sort of super gym. There's definitely a lot of Japanese inspiration here in the design of the buildings and layout. The loading screen for Chambara says the red brick warehouse it takes place in was built 100 years ago when Spaco was a harbor. This is absolutely based on the red brick warehouse in Yokohama, which is now a big shopping area. I love how Nintendo continuously draws from Japanese culture and isn't afraid to use that influence in games that are marketed towards a mass worldwide audience. One of the greener buildings also kind of reminds me of Miyashita Park in Shibuya. I'd love for a developer to come out and talk about the design inspiration for Spaco Square. Sadly, you really don't see a lot of it outside the menu. I'd love to walk around in it. I've pretty much said all there is to say about Nintendo Switch Sports. It's a revival of the original game more than anything. I don't want to say this game is bare bones, since it has about the same amount of content as Wii Sports, or maybe even more, but it definitely doesn't feel like a 15-year-old jump from the original game in terms of mechanics or features. It's a bit unambitious in terms of giving players a completely new experience, but that's clearly not the goal of the game. It's there to replicate the simplicity of Wii Sports and be another affordable, casual game in the Switch catalog. Kind of like Clubhouse Games. But hey, that had 51 games. This is only six sports. Where's the 51 sports version of this game? This is not going to be a title you sit down and binge for five hours, for example. It's something you pop in every now and then when you want to kill a few minutes or need to come down from another more intense title. If you enjoy the original Wii Sports, I think you'll like this one. Will it capture the magic of the original for lapsed fans? Probably not. Nintendo Switch Sports lacks that original's innovation, but it's undeniable that Switch Sports is still very, very fun. Win or lose, I always end matches with a smile on my face since the game is filled with so much charm and excitement. The path to my pro digital volleyball career starts now. You know what's not in Nintendo Switch Sports yet? Golf. It's coming this fall, but what if you want it now? Nintendo has some sort of answer for you. Mario Golf was recently added to the Nintendo 64 Nintendo Switch app. Developed by Camelot, it was the very first Mario-themed sports title and released on the N64 in 1999. Before this, Camelot was mostly known for the Shining Force series. And one of those also got added to NSO recently, so I might talk about it in the future. Camelot is also behind the excellent Golden Sun series, a franchise that may skip the Switch. Honestly, if a franchise skips the Switch, I don't know if it will ever come back. I kind of thought the same thing with the Wii. I mean, F-Zero skipped the Wii, and here we are. It's sort of funny to realize that golf came first in the N64 and GameCube days, but then tennis got priority later on since it released before golf on both 3DS and Switch. And the Wii U had a tennis title, but not a golf one. I'm not quite sure which series has sold more, but I would have to assume it is tennis. This is actually the very first Mario Golf game I've spent any sort of significant time with. Maybe I played Mario Golf at a kiosk or something, but I never picked up any iteration despite liking Mario and not thinking golf was that bad. 
I enjoy the NES golf titles, but for me, it's not a sport I get excited about. I actually do own a physical copy of Mario Golf 4 N64. It's a Japanese copy with an excellent cover. Maybe not all, but most Super Nintendo and N64 titles have way better covers in Japan. They have more space to work with since there aren't any uniform borders surrounding the artwork. The cover for Mario Golf on N64 is really classy, showing the green with Mario a bit out of focus. The sort of nonsensical phrase, for all players hoping to touch the true entertainment, circles around the logo. Yes, I did bring this up before, and I'm bringing it up again. I mean, how could I not? Even though I own it, I never actually opened it and put it into my N64. It's just sitting on the shelf. My Switch is easier to play than my N64, so why not try Mario Golf on the NSO app? Mario Golf is, well, a golf game with Mario characters. The first thing I notice is that most of the characters are unlockables. You only start with four playable characters. Can you guess them? Mario, Luigi, Peach, Toad? Wrong. Just wrong. Peach is right at least. Then Baby Mario. Then two human characters named Plum and Charlie. The N64 sports titles had human characters that seemed to be thrust into the Mario world, this sounds ridiculous at first, but I remember a lot of people liking this concept back in the day, and people are definitely nostalgic for these folks, even though they are very minor characters in the Mario canon. I gotta, of course, mention the Game Boy Color version, which released a few months after this one. Using the N64 transfer pack, you could transfer data and characters between the two versions. Tennis also had this, and I used this feature pretty often as I had both N64 and Game Boy Color versions of Tennis. It was a very cool idea, and the best implementation of the transfer pack after Pokemon, of course. But backing up a bit, a huge majority of the characters are locked. You have to unlock Mario. Mario. This seems pretty crazy today. Imagine if you had to unlock Mario in Mario Kart 8, for example. And Mario is not even the first character you unlock. Luigi is easier to get. I guess you gotta build up to him, but it would be kind of like having to unlock Ryu in Street Fighter and you need to unlock five other people beforehand. A lot of the courses are also unavailable at the start. The game really puts an emphasis on progressing through the game and getting better at it to unlock content. It's an interesting comparison point to what the sports series are today. The tennis and golf games on Switch relied more on a live service type of delivery system where they would patch in new characters, with most of the emphasis being on online play instead of a single player with a lot of modes. Here the game gives you the bare minimum and asks you to try to get it all. I suppose it's up to you to determine which is best. I honestly want unlockables, I want things to earn, although the allure of having everything at once is pretty tempting. The game does have an unlock nearly everything cheat, and after spending a bit of time with the game, yeah, I used it so I could see what it has to offer. If I paid $50 for this game, I would be pretty hesitant to use it, since I would want to get some hours for my money but the game is quote-unquote free, and I have a growing backlog, so I just want to kind of mess around and see what the game has to offer. It's more of a curiosity than anything. Even if you like unlockables, the game is pretty sparse when you first start it. The later characters are so much significantly better than who you start with. Try Charlie and then try Metal Mario and tell me that they're balanced. It can be frustrating a bit at first, since you are being forced to use these very basic, weak characters, but you still get a feel of the game's mechanics. Although the game has a very cartoony look and is filled with colorful characters, clouds with eyes, and all that Mario lightheartedness, it is quite deep and difficult. 
you have the typical golf clubs and can switch between normal and power strokes for distance. The wind and weather also need to be factored in. You can even move a cursor to indicate where on the ball you want to hit it, which affects how it moves through the air. All of these elements need to be factored into each stroke if you want to succeed. It is a pretty faithful recreation of actual golf mechanics, and it is not as arcadey as Mario Tennis. It can be quite difficult if you are not a golf expert, and there might be a lot of trial and error early on as your ball randomly flies into the bunker. This may be off-putting to those who kind of just want to mindlessly hit a ball around, but if you are a golf enthusiast, I think you'll be pretty impressed about how much depth there is to this game where you play as a monkey trying to hit a birdie in the desert. The courses are pretty straightforward. The first one, honestly, could be a golf course in real life, but they do get a bit more fantastical as you move along. Later ones have fairways that are split into small islands or have huge patches of the rough that you need to carefully maneuver around. Even so, it doesn't get super wacky. There aren't any obstacles like enemies trying to mess up your shot or timing it so you don't hit a thwomp or whatnot. I think I would have liked to have seen more of these elements in the game. More Mario and less golf, if that makes sense. Though I suppose there needs to be a balance between making a deep golf game and making a Mario Party minigame. If you swing too far in one direction, you could lose a lot of people. The game definitely leans more towards a golf sim than Mario Party, that's for sure. The main mode is tournament, where you go through 18 holes of golf. You then earn points which allow you to unlock more courses. So keep playing until you get good enough for more stages. There's also a completely separate mode called Get Character, which is where you unlock characters. How? By beating them in golf, of course. You have to get a better score than whoever you're trying to unlock. You get a medal every time you beat them, and whoever is the first to get the right number of medals wins. The AI can be pretty brutal at first, but it gets much weaker as you go along. This means that each character will likely take some time to unlock. It's doubtful that you'll be smoking them early on, unless you completely get a feel for the game mechanics. There's also a putting mini golf mode, which honestly might be my favorite. This is more in line with what I want from the game. Silly, unrealistic challenges. Here you just putt the ball, with each course's par being three strokes. The first area's courses are all shaped like numbers, so the fifth hole is shaped like the number five. Your ricochet skills are put to the test here, and if you nail it right, you can score some great shots. A later course is themed around letters. Have you ever thought about how to use the angles of an A correctly to sink a putt? You will. There's also training where you can practice or speed golf that is really just time attack, and ring shot where you have to hit the ball through rings. I like this mode since you have to use some unconventional methods to go through the rings, as opposed to how you would play a normal course. There are some tricky shots you'll need to pull off to win. As you can tell, I'm more drawn towards these more gimmicky modes than the actual golf, although the real deal golf is very solid. I'm glad I finally got a chance to try the series. I like to plug in these holes in my Nintendo backlog. I won't become a Mario Golf expert, but now I can at least say, hey, I played the first one. I do prefer Mario Tennis, but I just like tennis more than golf. It's certainly more active. Here there's a lot of time spent just watching the ball fly through the air, even though they mix it up with a stylish camera angle and fun sound effects. I am a bit curious to try out the Game Boy Color game. The simpler mechanics might be more appealing to me, and I had a lot of fun with the RPG mode in Mario Tennis for Game Boy Color, so maybe I might get a kick out of that game's adventure mode as well. It doesn't really make me want to pick up Super Rush on Switch though. I think I'm pretty satisfied with Mario Golf 64. A lot of people dislike the NSO system, but it is a great way to experience games you're curious about 
and would never purchase. And it's great for this podcast because if I don't have a lot of games to talk about, I can just pop over on NSO and dig into some retro goodness I might have missed in the past. I'm sure there will be an episode where I'm like, I don't know, Jelly Boy? I guess I'll talk about that. Hopefully we are months, if not years away from the Jelly Boy episode. In short, Mario Golf on N64 on NSO. Check it out if you're hankering for some golf before they add it to Nintendo Switch Sports. Just use the super cheat that unlocks mostly everything. I won't judge you. That's all for games. Let's move on to our feature. Alright, let's hit the streets of Tokyo. This episode's feature is all about Beep, a retro computer and game shop located in Akihabara. Originally an e-commerce site, Beep opened up in Akihabara in 2015. Now, Akiba is no stranger to video game stores, both retro and new. It can be hard to stand out. Yeah, yeah, you have a dozen box copies of Super Mario Kart. Been there, done that. Once you've visited them enough, you do get a feeling of who has what. Okay, Sudugaya has a better Game Boy Advance stock, but the prices are better at Traders, but if you want Saturn games, you need to go to Super Potato, and so on. Depending on what you want to buy, you likely have different store preferences in Akihabara alone. But there's one store that I would say has a truly unique inventory, and that's Beep. Although they have the typical retro games you'd expect, like old PS1 or Famicom games, their specialty is something else. They are most famous for their impressive stock of old Japanese computers. Nowadays, the computer industry has really been homogenized. You have Windows, you have Mac, but back in the 80s and early 90s, you had a variety of companies delivering their own distinct vision on what a computer should be. And in Japan, it was a whole different world. Japan had its own isolated computer industry that people outside the country know little about. And what are the most important functions for these computers? Gaming, of course. While Nintendo and Sega were vying for console supremacy, in the Japanese PC sphere, you had Fujitsu, Sharp, and NEC. Well, NEC was also in the console market with the PC engine, but that was in conjunction with Hudsonsoft. These early PCs had 8 and then 16-bit processors that were capable of gaming. Not only capable, the graphics were often far beyond what you would find on consoles. Dojin Soft, which are games made by hobbyists and not major companies, were a major component of early Japanese PC gaming. You could really think of them as the first indie games. And it's hard to talk about retro Japanese PC gaming without bringing up eroge, or adult games. There are dozens of these types of games, maybe even hundreds. And while it helped bring in an audience, it kind of gave PC gaming a negative perception in Japan especially compared to the more family-friendly consoles. Okay, enough history. Let's go shopping. Beep is wedged between the main shopping street on Sotokanda Ichome and Akihabara Junk Street. Yes, that's what it's actually called. Junk Street mostly sells PC parts like cords, keyboards, all that fun stuff. This is how I feel Akihabara was like before all the otakus took over. Before the anime, before the maids. Just glass, wires, buttons, metal. By the way, dodging maid cafe workers is an important skill to learn when navigating Akiba. They mostly stand off to the side, but every now and then you'll turn a corner and, oh, maid. When you find the shop sign, you might be surprised that it's not some huge billboard looming over the street. Instead, it's waist high. That's because Beep is a B1 shop, meaning you'll have to delve down into the depths of Tokyo itself to visit the store. This is going to be a common theme for this segment. Beep is cramped. Incredibly so. 
I will say that compared to my first visit a few years ago, it does seem slightly more spacious, but it's definitely not an easy store to maneuver around in. You'll discover this immediately when you're trying to actually get into the store, as the only entrance is a narrow staircase fit for one person. If someone is coming up, well, you're not going down. Eventually, though, you will be able to get into the shop. I visited a few days ago, so the layout and stock might be totally different from when you visit, but the first thing I noticed was a small arcade cab of Kiki Kai Kai, aka Pocky and Rocky. Kind of ironic since I talked about it last episode, but they do have a new game. Beep is a small shop with narrow aisles. It doesn't have these seemingly endless rows of games like Super Potato. Everything is very tight, very segmented. Want to check out their console offerings first? Well, it depends if someone is in the way. You will often be at the mercy of other customers in the shop. If someone is in an aisle, they're essentially the king of the aisle. No one is getting in or out unless the sole person standing there decides to move. Fortunately, I was able to head straight for the PC hardware section. You'll be greeted by a dozen flickering CRTs. So many classic retro Japanese computers are right before your eyes, with games running on them. FM Towns, PC-98, Sharp X-68000, MSX, everyone was here. I didn't mention it earlier, but MSX was Microsoft's attempt to break into the Japanese computer market, and it is likely most known today because the Metal Gear series started on there. There was a Panasonic FSA1 type of MSX computer with that awesome red color that some MSX computers had. That red just pops. I think Venom Snake's robot hand in MGS5 is based on this color as well. Can I just say it's amazing how much branding and marketing has changed in the past 30 years? Back in the day, if you had a new piece of hardware, a new computer, apparently the marketing team just said, just throw in a bunch of letters and numbers, as many as possible. People will figure it out. Although you likely won't be walking out of the store with the computer under your arm, it's still a lot of fun just to see them up close. I don't know if there's a Japanese computer museum somewhere, but this is the closest thing to it that I've seen. You probably can't touch them at a museum either. I'm not sure if you're supposed to be fiddling with them here either, but you can at least poke around a bit. One thing you'll notice is just how small a lot of these computers are. They're very compact. A far cry from the massive towers that dominated the 90s and even early 2000s in the West. They definitely had a distinct look to them. Just buy one as a decoration for your room to make it retro chic, why not? A lot of them don't have prices listed on them, but poking around a bit, they do seem to be several hundreds of dollars. It's not just a game machine, it's a whole computer that probably requires a lot of upkeep. It is impressive that these old computers have maintained some value after all this time. Try selling a 2014 iPad, you're not going to get several hundred dollars for it. For Nintendo fans out there, Probably the most interesting thing in this section is a PC-88 running Donkey Kong 3. Nintendo licensed out their franchises to Hudson Soft and several Mario-related games released on these PCs, but they are all pretty bad. Donkey Kong 3 isn't a port of the arcade game either, but some sort of different game with the same name. These NEC Nintendo games are definitely a weird oddity, but likely not worth playing. Last bit of interesting info in this area, there's just a box filled with Raspberry Pi Zeros. Definitely not something you will find at other game shops. If you already have an old school PC and want some software, they have a rather large section dedicated to it. Although there are many different Japanese PCs, eventually the PC-98 dominated the market, so most of the games released were for that. However, Beat does carry quite a number of games for different systems. You'll find a lot of predictable stuff here, like Falcom and Koei strategy games. Most of them are still preserved in these giant PC boxes. 
one fun thing to come across are the old HAL MSX games. Before Kirby, before Famicom, HAL made dozens of games for other hardware. It's pretty wild to see how diverse their lineup was before Kirby. Then they just rode that pink train forever. Who knew the developers of Heavy Boxing for MSX would eventually make the best-selling fighting game of all time? Unless you're well-versed in classic Japanese PC gaming, a lot of these titles will seem unfamiliar, but that's also part of the fun. Just hold that big PC box in your hand and maybe through osmosis, you'll become an expert. How many people can say, yeah, I held a Japanese copy of Wizardry 5 in my hands? Outside of PC games, another notable element of Beep is their assortment of rare items. A lot of it is behind glass, so again, it feels like you are kind of in a mini gaming museum. Not just games either, but soundtracks, advertising displays, and other paraphernalia show up here. One of the newer items which caught my eye is a Hong Kong exclusive Game Boy Color. It's translucent blue with Pokemon on the borders. The power light is actually the center of the Pokeball. The price? 350,000 yen. I mean, I like the color, but I can think of other things to do with that money. Other oddities include a 45,000 yen poster of Capcom's The Punisher for the arcade. It's a huge poster and looks great, but again, that money could go elsewhere. One area I got a kick out of was the International Games, aka Games from America. They actually have box copies of US games here at absurd prices. Guess how much a copy for The Simpsons Road Rage for GBA goes here? 15,000 yen. Do not pay that much, please. There's also quite a lot of Atari titles. These likely aren't too interesting if you're from overseas, but it is funny to see just what they have. In a glassed-off area, they have US versions of Secret of the Stars, Rygar, Sonic Spinball, Rampage, Comic Zone, Maximum Carnage. It's truly a weird collection of games. I'm sure there are Japanese fans of US games, but this is really slim pickings here. Their Nintendo section is fairly small. I think their PC Engine section alone is about the same size as their Nintendo area but there are some good finds. The aforementioned Game Boy, and there's a case of old Game & Watches, including a box copy of the Snoopy Game & Watch. I also came across a gold wheel for Mario Kart Wii, which was a Club Nintendo bonus. This was actually affordable at only 1200 yen. There was also a boxless gold N64, which I do own. On top of the Nintendo shelf are random boxed consoles, and I noticed an orange N64 was going for 33,000 yen, which is pretty expensive. N64 hardware and software is pretty cheap in Japan, so this definitely caught me off guard. It was only later when I realized it wasn't just a fantastic orange N64, but a special Daiei Hawks orange and black N64 that was only sold at the shop Daiei. Apparently only about 5 to 10,000 exist. So uh, maybe I should go back and add it. Some other fun console related items I came across are the Sega's 3D glasses for the Master System. Not sure if these things still work or if they ever worked, Speaking of that, Beep did have a Sega Mark III, which served as the predecessor for the Master System. A PC Engine Duo was on the next shelf over, so if you are looking for obscure consoles, Beep has you covered. More of an arcade fan? There is a section dedicated to old school arcade boards, with each one neatly wrapped in pink bubble wrap. A lot of these are very expensive, easily exceeding a few hundred dollars. Would you pay $200 for a Mahjong arcade board? Someone might. They also sell JAMA adopters here in this section. There are even more obscure items like the panels of specific arcade cabinets. I was tempted to buy a plastic board that just said Namco on it. Outside of games, they carry a lot of soundtracks and old game magazines, especially related to old PC games. A lot of Dojin mags are also available here, and maybe nowhere else. Worth noting that Beep also published a game, 
Cotton Reboot is a remake of an arcade shmup and a hit switch last year. The story behind how a game shop suddenly became a publisher is pretty interesting. Beep also published a small magazine about arcade games, asked a developer to write an article about their game, one thing led to another, and that developer alongside Beep worked together and managed to release Cotton Reboot. There's a lot of cotton ads around the store, and if you're going to buy it, why not get it from the source? I know a lot of this feature is just me saying, I saw this, I saw this, I saw this, but that's the appeal of Beep. You go in and you see some truly unique items you've never encountered before. It's hard to go in with an idea of what you want to buy and walk out with it. I'm not sure if a lot of people will pop by Beep and think, hmm, if they have an arcade board of Galaxian, I'll pick it up. A lot of Beep stock might be too esoteric if you're only interested in collecting console games, but I still think it's worth spending a bit of time in here if you're curious about old Japanese PC games and want to see some weird items behind glass that cost hundreds of dollars. That's it for this episode's feature. Now let's look at some news. News time. Don't you hate it when you're preparing a podcast and then important news gets announced right after you've finished your news segment? I do, but it can't be helped. Nintendo announced a Splatoon 3 date a few days back. It'll hit stores September 9th, 9922 the 23rd anniversary of the Dreamcast's North American launch date. I'm sure that's just a coincidence, although many people did compare Splatoon to Jet Set Radio when it was first announced. In the February Direct, Splatoon 3 was given a summer date. People are saying that September is technically summer. Nah, come on. Do you go to the beach in September? It's at least early September, and it will likely still be incredibly hot in Tokyo, so some summer vibes are still retained. People were suspecting that Xenoblade 3 and Splatoon have swapped dates. I mean, it's not impossible. If Xenoblade 3 is ready to go and Splatoon could use some work, you might as well move one up and move one back. Or maybe the plan was to launch both in September. The Splatoon social media accounts have been showing off some new videos and images recently. We've really only had a look at Turf Wars and some new weapons. One thing that stood out is the returning Ink Strike now has three missiles. This special ability skipped the second game, likely because it relied on using the gamepad to pick your bombing area, and it was a bit overpowered. A well-timed ink strike could definitely win games for you. It was a pretty popular special ability though, so I expect a lot will use it in Splatoon 3 as well. You can now give your character titles with a banner background, so I expect that will be unlockable in both single-player and multiplayer modes. One title is Inkless, which I can see a lot of people using. Nintendo Switch Sports also has unlockable titles, so I expect this to be a feature that will pop up in a lot of Nintendo Online games. What was the first game to use this? Street Fighter 4? Nintendo is only about a decade late. I'm incredibly excited for Splatoon 3, even though they haven't shown off a whole lot. I jumped into a few Splatoon 2 matches recently, and yeah, that game is still great, but I'm ready for a new version. Nintendo has played it pretty close to the chest when it comes to what's new outside of some weapons and it will have another unique story mode. Are they hiding a battle royale mode? Is the equipment and weapon system getting an overhaul? I suspect we will know about this sooner than later as Nintendo is very likely to hold a June Direct that will spill the beans on their other titles for the back half of the year. Splatoon 3 will be about $60, but what if you have a bit of cash burning a hole in your pocket? As always, Square has you covered. Square Enix recently announced a new statue in their Masterline series, one of Terra and her Magitech. The price? Only about 12,000 US dollars. 
dollars, not yen. Only 600 will be made, with 150 being set aside for Japan. We are in the golden age of scalpers, especially when it comes to game-related items, but I doubt many people will be chomping at the bit to reserve this. I must admit the statue looks incredible, but not $12,000 incredible. Square's game merch is always at a premium price, though. I suppose they want to make their customers think that these are prestige items, but plastic is plastic. You know how many Splatoons you could buy for $12,000? A lot. A more affordable piece of game merch are mini Pikmin erasers available at Nintendo Tokyo. I've talked a bit about this type of merch before. You get a small plastic capsule keychain, and then you can fill it with mini erasers. Mario, Pokemon, and Animal Crossing versions already exist, but now Pikmin joins that group. It makes perfect sense. I mean, Pikmin are tiny. I always get a kick out of tiny Pikmin merch. They had some gummy candy last year that was supposed to approximate the actual size of the Pikmin. I did feel bad about eating Pikmin, but they were delicious, I can't lie. I have a Mario capsule keychain, so I'm not really looking into getting more, but Pikmin fans in Japan, keep an eye out for these. The announcement is from Nintendo Tokyo, but it would likely wind up in other merch shops as well. I probably should have mentioned the more important Square news before I started talking about a 12 grand statue. Square Enix has sold their Western Studios to Swedish holding company Embracer Group for $300 million. Embracer Group is the same organization that owns THQ Nordic, Saber Interactive, Koch Media, and a bunch of other companies. They are most famous for, well, buying things. This sale includes IDOS, Crystal Dynamics, and Square Enix Montreal alongside their associated IP. The biggest one is perhaps Tomb Raider, but also Deus Ex, Thief, Legacy of Kane, and most importantly, Gex. This is a pretty shocking acquisition, but it starts to make sense after some recent games performed under expectations. The most notable being The Avengers, which was critically thrashed and hit bargain men soon after release. Guardians of the Galaxy, which was praised, also didn't seem to make a big dent. Plus, the latest Tomb Raider game was said to be a step down from its predecessor. And even going back further, the last Deus Ex game didn't sell as well as the reboot. It seems wild to get rid of all these IPs, and $300 million really does seem like a bargain for Embracer Group. Tomb Raider alone is a pretty notable media franchise in itself. If someone suddenly announced a new Tomb Raider game, people would be interested. It also has a bit more cross-media appeal than a lot of other video game franchises. Some have speculated that Square is getting rid of their Western studios to set the Japanese studios up for a sale, possibly by Sony, but I feel this is pretty far-fetched. That would certainly be damaging to Nintendo fans. Square doesn't treat the Switch as their primary platform for AAA releases, but they have put out a lot of notable content on the Switch. It could just be an issue where these huge AAA games they've been focusing on haven't really worked out, so they want to shift their priorities back to Japanese studios and invest there. Cranking out one new Final Fantasy game every six years probably isn't ideal for Square, so anything to help lighten the load would be welcome. Hey, how about yearly dungeon encounter games? I wouldn't complain. Now for some Japanese software and hardware sales. We have to wait about one more week for full Golden Week data, but Nintendo Switch Sports sold 190,000 physical units during its launch week in Japan. This is about in line with expectations. I assume it likely has a high digital attach rate since the physical version is 1,000 yen more expensive since it is bundled with the leg strap. And yeah, you could enjoy 95% of the game content without the leg strap, so I think people who aren't physical game collectors likely went the cheaper route. This type of game is not one where it really makes most of its sales in week one. It'll likely be a strong seller throughout the year, similar to other casual titles 
like Ring Fit and Clubhouse Games. Nintendo Switch Sports turning into a Ring Fit level of success might be unlikely, but it's an easy multi-million seller. It will be continuously supported throughout the year and likely next year too, so it will occasionally get some bumps in sales every now and then. Powerful Pro Baseball did take the number one and two spots during its debut a few weeks ago, with 92K on Switch and 54K on PS4. That's quite the gap, as the PS4 version was only about 2,000 units away from the Switch version two years ago. Switch has been selling a fairly consistent 60K units per week in Japan recently. We're really just waiting for these Golden Week numbers to come in before we get some really spicy sales news. Next episode, everyone. Let's move on to the Japanese gaming phrase of the week. This episode's phrase is konerosu, konerosu. This is a loan word from English. Well, actually two loan words. Can you guess the meaning? Konerosu is actually connection lost. Japan loves to shorten phrases. So take kon and take loss and you have konerosu. It refers to when your online cuts out in a game. This isn't a gaming specific phrase, but one that probably pops up more than you'd like it to. A little behind the scenes, about five seconds before I was set to interview my guest for this episode, my internet completely cut out. Now that's a bad konerosu moment. It got fixed quickly though, but yeah, panic mode set in. Once again, konerosu. Now for the Japanese tweet of the week. I've chosen one from artist at Moku SSBU. It's fan art of the Pokemon Shuckle looking at a glass vase filled with flowers. That's it. That's the tweet. I gotta work in Pokemon somehow. Shuckle is one of my personal favorites, so I'm glad to get some shine every now and then. This artist has a lot of other evocative Pokemon art, so check it out. The tweet is in the description as always. That's all this time. Thanks as always for listening. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite app. This podcast is also available on YouTube, so like and subscribe there as well. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Just search for Tokyo Game Life or find links in the podcast description. If you like the podcast, be sure to share it with your friends on social media. If there's anything you want me to talk about or cover, don't be shy, just message me on Twitter. If you've made it this far, I assume you enjoyed the episode, so if you want to see more of me in other places, you can. I've guested on the excellent Still Loading podcast about gaming in Tokyo. The link to that is also in the podcast description. I also participated in MinMax's Nintendo-themed Trivia Tower, which you can watch on YouTube. I didn't win, but I did make it to the final round, which exceeded my expectations. I don't say anything, but you can see host Ben Hansen shout out my name several times. I don't want to brag, but I know some pretty tough questions. I'll link to that in the description as well. The next episode of Tokyo Game Life will be Sunday, May 22nd. See you next time. Mata ne!